360 degrees. Hop high, 360 degrees. Hop high, 306. 306. 360 degrees. Hop high. All right, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. Well, happy Black History Month, people. Yeah, tonight, Full Circle kicks off our celebration honoring Black History Month. On tonight's show, we'll hear how a decade-long tradition in Antioch has now gone virtual due to these COVID-19 times. We'll get an update on truth, reconciliation, and reparations from our own Joy Moore and writer and historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And later, we'll bring back an archival interview with renowned poet, author, and former KPFA programmer, Adam David Miller with our own Miss M. All that tonight on Full Circle. I am your host, Freewell and Franklin, coming to you from downtown Antioch. That's Bay Miwok territory, everyone. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. Hey, 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 everyone. Again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. My name is Brewell and Franklin, and I am your host tonight. And tonight, Full Circle kicks off our celebration honoring Black history. And what better way to do that than to bring you news and information that will help bring awareness to not only the history of African Americans in this country, but also events that celebrate them. But during these times of COVID-19 and the restrictions on crowds and social gatherings, many celebrations continue, only now they have gone virtual. The 11th Annual Black History Arts and Artifacts Exhibit in Antioch is one of those events. After over a decade of sharing this beautiful exhibit, the organizers wanted to be sure they kept it going even during these extraordinary times. Here is the interview I did Wednesday with Dr. Kerry Frazier of Ruha Community Outreach and Miss Tracy Jones of Grace Arms in Antioch. Check it out. All right, welcome everyone to Full Circle. This is Freewell and Franklin, and I'm excited to bring back a friend to the show, uh, Dr. Kerry Frazier and a guest of hers, Mrs. Tracy Jones. And we're going to talk about the 11th Annual Black History Arts and Artifacts Exhibit out here in Antioch. And this has been mainly handled by uh, Dr. Carrie Frazier, who is the president of Ruha Community Outreach. Um, Dr. Frazier, how are you doing? Doing good. How are you this evening? Great, great. Well, can you just tell us a little bit about Ruha Community Outreach and um, kind of what you do? Okay. A lot of people know us. We've been around for about 10 years, and we're basically a social services organization that provides supports for families, and in particular, cultural events for 
that are for the African-American community, but also it provides cross-cultural education for the larger community. And those two events have been the Black History Art and Artifacts Exhibit, as well as Juneteenth and Kwanzaa. And so we're, you know, that's what we're known the most for, as well as providing uh, services for families that include counseling, health education, and uh, living skills. All right. And this is coming up to be the 11th annual Black History Arts and Artifacts exhibit, but we're in the COVID time. But let's talk about events past. Um, how did you set up the Arts and Artifacts exhibit? What was it like getting to come in person? Tell us about how you set this up. Well, we wanted to, first of all, just be able to provide that kind of a venue here in East County because most people travel outside the county to be able to get any kind of African-American cultural experience. And so the exhibit was a way we thought we could present some cultural information for people to come and see. And it started out with just the three collectors that were involved, myself, uh, Gloria Hartsoe with parents providing for the education of young children, and Joyce Smalley, who was the uh, curator of the JTS Art Gallery. And so we combined our collections and we were able to find different spots that would let us set up and we would set up the exhibits. And what was interesting is as we set up the collections that we had and people attended, some people would say, you know, you need this picture over here because we set it up as a timeline going through history, starting with Africa all the way up to the, to the present day. And people would come and look at a different section. And if they had some art or an artifact that would fit there, they literally would go home, bring it back, and let us borrow it for the time that the exhibit was up. So it really became a community uh, event in, in terms of the contributions. We have contributions from people all over. And you mentioned getting the experience out here in East Contra Costa County. Talk about the development over the 11-year period. And um, Tracy, you could jump in any time. Um, what you've seen over the 11 years as people have become more aware of um, Black History Month, Juneteenth, and some of the contributions that African Americans have made. It's been really gratifying, you know, I emphasize the cross-cultural communication because, you know, often when people get together and there's a history that's been negative, sometimes the negative feelings still hold. And we provided a place where everybody could come and share and be able to interact and talk with each other about the exhibits and then be able to pinpoint in their own lives when some of these things were happening or what they learned when they were young. Um, We've had at least 2,000 people to visit the exhibit over the last 10 years, and each year it would grow more and more. Our average attendance was about 300 plus, and so we're excited that it's been able to last that long, and, and people have continued to support it. Given COVID, we, we really had to put our thinking caps on about how could we make something happen that was going to be um, viable for the community and when we couldn't have people come in and have actual a live presentation. And so that's where I met um, Mr. Randolph and I met Tracy and she's going to talk a little bit about how we came to being able to do this virtually. Well, yeah, Tracy. So um, times have changed and 
a lot of things have been canceled in person, of course, due to the restrictions of COVID-19. So Tracy, tell us about how you're working this for um, 2021. What is the Black History Arts and Artifacts exhibit going to look like um, this year? So this year, because of COVID, um, the Black History Arts and Artifacts is going to be a virtual exhibit. So last year we and the years before, people came in and could actually look at stuff and touch the stuff and kind of really get a sense of it. This year, it's going to be narrated by um, a team that is the Black History Arts and Artifacts Exhibits team, but it will be virtual. So you'll watch videos of the different categories for, uh, for Black History Month. It was a meeting of the minds to come to a virtual. Everything is being done virtual, Zoom, and all of this these things right now. But trying to put this together and trying to include everything without making it long and drawn out, but still including everything that we think is important. So it just it became something that we strove for. And Dr. Frazier, how about you? Have you what are you doing um, for this year to help this? Basically, just trying to be a coach, and uh, and I contributed all the artifacts in my collection. I contributed it to the uh, the two grace arms to get them started. So you, they'll you know you'll see some of the things that were there shared by that was contributed by everybody, and you'll also see the artifacts that I donated to grace arms as well. And just providing any coaching if they needed it as to uh, staging uh, and also going over narration for the different sites. All right. And Miss Tracy Jones, talk about uh, the way people can tune in and you know maybe some of the things they'll see. Sure. So in the past, it was a one week exhibit where you could walk through. We had an opening and then um, you walk through and you could come for the different t- days that it was open. But since it's virtual, mm-hmm. we're going to open on Saturday February 6th at noon, and you will go to the website, which is gracearmsofantioch.org slash black dash history, and it will begin at 12 noon. But since it's virtual, we're able to have it all month. So it won't end until February 27th at 430. But during the entire month, you'll be able to go on and watch any of the videos from beginning to end. You can come back and rewatch. Some of the things you'll see are Africa, the motherland, African and Mexican heritage, African and Chinese heritage, Middle Passage and slavery, plantation life, the church, um, the Underground Railroad, Emancipation Proclamation, Reconstruction, Africa, African-American leaders and educators, the Back to Africa movement, um, African-American physicians, scientists, inventors, engineers, the civil rights movement, Kwanzaa, musicians, writers, and entertainers, as well as African-American sports figures, African-American in military, um, a quilt collection, African-American library and art collection, and a list of other ones, including our African-American leaders making history, which would include Barack Obama and Kamala Harris. So just a lot of information. Um, again, since it's virtual, you're you're actually watching as opposed to walking through um, in person. And I know in the past that Dr. Frazier had a lot of um, 
performances, a poet, uh, musicians. Is there going to be anything like that this year that you're arranging, Tracy? So it will be very similar, except again, everything will be um, taped. So you'll go, you'll be able to go on and watch it from beginning to end with the welcome, um, with the entertainment, the poetry, the dancers, and then you can go through the exhibit. And um, before I let Dr. Frazier give a last comment, let me get um, the way to log in again from you, Miss Tracy Jones. So yeah, so on February on Saturday, February sixth, you'll be able to go to gracearmsofantioch.org. Grace Arms of Antioch is all one word. dot org backslash black dash history, and it's a free event. You just need to sign on and and then watch. And why do you think this is so important to bring this, as Dr. Frazier said, um, to East County? And considering Antioch, we're pretty far east, Contra Costa County. So in your opinion, why is this so important? Well, I think that a lot of African-Americans that have moved here to East County have come from different areas, San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, um, San Jose. We've come for the affordability. However, the culture that we brought with us and that we had in those other cities was not represented here. So we were here, but it's an, it's nice and refreshing to know that we have a place that we can come, that we can see, that we can go back through our history to see where we've come from to where we are now and how to move forward in that. Thank you. That's uh, Miss uh, Tracy Jones, and she's the uh, team coordinator for the Black History Arts and Artifacts exhibit. And uh, Dr. Kerry Frazier, you mentioned it earlier about bringing this out here, but why is it so important to bring this out here to East Contra Costa County? Well, East Contra Costa is this area of the county seems to be forgotten a lot in many ways, not just culturally, but other services as well. And as Tracy mentioned, there there are at least 22,000 African-American families that live out here now. And so to not have the culture to go along with that would be, um, I think, would be a, a, a mistake. And so we want to make sure that our children get a chance to really appreciate their culture and, their, and the parents as well. And so we just decided we needed to do something about it. And so we put together uh, the events that are, are classic in African-American communities, like exhibits, Kwanzaa, and also Juneteenth. With the political climate being the way it is, uh, Black history is more important than ever. One thing that I do want to say in terms of the opening, we I don't think that we're going to have dancers this year, but we certainly will have... Uh, music and, and, and from a singer as well as spoken word. All right. Well, um, thank you again, Dr. Kerry uh, Frazier, for answering the call and bringing this information to us. And it's great to talk to you and meet you, uh, Miss Tracy Jones, the team coordinator for the Black History Arts and Artifacts exhibit. And if anybody out there missed the information, of course, I will have a link on our website, kpfaapprentice.org just after the show tonight. Um, thanks again for speaking with us tonight on Full Circle. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. All right, everybody, keep it locked right here for more Full Circle right after this. So first things first. Life is beautiful. Life is beautiful. Black history. Black history.
Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM, KPFA and KPFA.org. I am Freewell and Franklin, and you just heard the Turn Up Kids, a.k.a. Tuck, with their song Black History. You can check out all their videos on YouTube, and their channel is kid-friendly for all to subscribe to. And you know... I will post a link to the Turnup Kids YouTube channel on the apprenticeship website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show. Check them out if you can. And before that music break, we heard from Dr. Kerry Frazier of Ruha Community Outreach and Miss Tracy Jones of Grace Arms in Antioch. 
They brought us important information on tomorrow's kickoff of the 11th annual Black History Arts and Artifacts virtual exhibit, normally held in Antioch, now online for all to see. Remember, this kicks off tomorrow at noon, and to log in, just get online and go to gracearmsofantioch.org slash black dash history. Let me say it one more time. gracearmsofantioch.org slash black dash history. And, you know, it'll be on the KPFA Apprentice website just after the show tonight. All right, let's continue on our celebration. One thing that gets a lot of conversations going is the talk of reparations. Many Americans will always come with the knee-jerk reaction, why should I pay for something I had nothing to do with? Or, black people today aren't or weren't slaves, why should they get anything? Well, there has been also a lack of effort by the United States to really take ownership of its past treatment of African Americans, which leads to the ongoing racial and social issues we see today, in my opinion, of course. Well, let's hear these thoughts from our own Joy Moore and celebrated author and historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Truth, that which is true or in accordance with fact or reality. Reconciliation, settle, resolve, reconcile differences. Reparation, the making of amends for a wrong that's been done by paying money to or otherwise helping those who have been wronged. The first place around here that needs to begin being truthful to reconcile and remove inequities, repair and provide justice would be our government. Our government can and should repair the decimated communities of all indigenous on these continents, both North and South. And as a nation that has benefited from the annihilation and theft of and from millions of people over hundreds of years, we should provide reparations. And we should hold those who profit from this system responsible for repairing the rest of us, including and especially any wealth derived from the enslavement and trade of humans in this country for centuries, which continues to this day. Check the country's prison population. Supposedly, this is the greatest society on the planet, or it was until recently. We have the resources. The question is, do enough of us have the will and the desire to journey down the road toward a more just society for all of us in the United States? Our government has never supported truth and reconciliation or reparations. Just look at the abysmal U.S. record of non-support for the elimination of racism through the efforts of the United Nations. Four world conferences have been held, beginning in 1978, then again in 1983 and 2001, and finally in 2009. I actually attended the 2001 UN Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance held in Durban, South Africa, 
along with thousands of other human rights activists from around the world. Most folks don't even remember or know this happened because four days after it ended, 9-11 happened. <laughs> I recently spoke with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, great scholar, humanitarian activist, writer, historian. She's attended all four of these conferences. Here are her views on the U.S. government's lack of efforts towards elimination of racism and any possible reparations through the United Nations process. I attended all of those conferences. The one in 1978 was the first one. These conferences were related to the um, covenant, human covenant from 1960s on the elimination of, of all forms of racism. Uh, but the conference, it took some different turns between in the decade after the um, covenant. Of course, the national liberation movements, African countries uh, were still becoming independent states, winning their um, independence. Uh, the uh, Palestine Liberation Organization had been uh, designated as a uh, official observer status along with the African National Congress and the Southwestern People's Organization of Namibia. So the first conference in 1978 was organized to uh, begin publicizing within the, you know, the UN system and the world system the deeper problems than uh, just plain racial discrimination, that this was also um, a subject of colonialism and putting it in that context. So the first conference was very small, uh, was during the Carter administration, which had publicized uh, human rights, you know, in, in a very general way. Um, it's when I got involved in the UN work through the um, indigenous peoples building a caucus there. We began in uh, 1974, around this same period of time. And fortunately, the uh, conference included a paragraph about um, indigenous peoples. So that's one of the reasons I got very involved from the beginning. So the, uh, the United States boycotted the 1978 conference because the uh, Palestine was included, or at least that was their excuse. Some of us thought that um, it had also to do with it, including indigenous peoples and um, and even you know the deeper forms of colonialism rather than simply uh, um, an incohate racism, racial discrimination. But it did weaken. Uh, they also didn't help with the funding. So it was very small. It was at the United Nations headquarters in Geneva. And uh, it was a fairly large conference room, but not an auditorium, probably a, a hundred people. The report was excellent. It can be found on the UN.org um, uh, um, website. Anything that the United States didn't participate in is as the um, largest power in the world and the main funder of the UN at the time was tremendously weakened because you know the dues were paid by uh, economic uh, 
resources um, when the United States didn't fund. The other was political, that if the United States wasn't there, this was the Cold War, it was considered um, a leftist, communist controlled thing, which it really was not. It was really the uh, African states and the liberation movements initiative and their allies uh, in Africa and um, in the Middle East. So this was um, the context of the beginning of this process. Uh, they determined to have a another world conference in 1983. I attended that. Uh, of course, this was the Reagan administration, and they boycotted almost everything in the UN. But they again, you know, did it and claimed that it was because Palestine was included. So it was also small. It was actually smaller than the 1978 one, probably only 50, 60 people in a smaller conference room, but very interesting, very rich. And um, a report came out of it. So they didn't really try to have any more of these. Um, by that time, by 1983, uh, even Zimbabwe had gained independence and um, uh, there was the African National Congress uh, or South Africa apartheid and Palestine that um, took different turns and different uh, different um, forums. So it was really uh, dropped until after the Oslo Accords when uh, Yasser Arafat agreed uh, to drop the um, Zionism as a form of racism, which had been a part of the whole um, ra racial discrimination uh, context in those conferences, that Zionism was a form of racism, which of course it is. But um, they did drop it as part of the negotiations. So then uh, it was clear that there could be another, and the Clinton administration got involved in the um, in building and, and really supporting um, a world conference on racism, racial discrimination, that would um, uh, be a truly world conference. And it was uh, set for Durban, of course, after, um, after apartheid was defeated. And it was, it was huge. And they were going to participate and help fund it. And yet within three days of the non-governmental uh, parallel conference, which preceded the official conference, the United States delegates walked out and did boycott it. Because, you know, we non-governmental people were always more radical. We took our views and, um, you know, to the official conferences, but they didn't always implement, um, you know, the states didn't implement what we asked for. Um, but they used that, our radicalism, and we didn't, we also, we did include Palestine. And they used that excuse to walk out. But it was still a very powerful conference. And I think the most important thing that came out of it was the establishment of the working group of experts on people of African descent. Uh, this was um, all, you know, the Western Hemisphere's descendants of uh, enslaved Africans. And this has been a very dynamic, ever since then, a very dynamic um, working group. 
uh, dealing with the transatlantic slave trade. And one day, I think um, another conference will be held uh, that um, summarizes really all the work that they have done and move to another level of understanding, you know, of um, uh, kind of international solidarity uh, in a very different way and where the African states are are themselves on board. This was the first real meeting between descendants of African slavery and the diaspora with uh, African states themselves and where they had a, a really interesting uh, reckoning of um, their own responsibility in terms of the slave trade, the African states. It was, it was very moving, some very moving sessions. So I think that's the um, sort of in a nutshell uh, of, of that process, and it's still ongoing. That was Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, civil rights activist, scholar, writer, historian, and a witness to the failure of our government to address the issues of racism and reparations. Thank you, Roxanne. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Now you may ask, what do we do? How might we collectively continue to address injustice, inequality, and the oppression of the majority of us? There have been and are many, many efforts to provide reparation to enslaved Africans worldwide that continue today. And in the words of Dr. Amos Nelson Wilson, Justice requires not only the ceasing and desisting of injustice, but also requires either punishment or reparation for injuries and damages inflicted for prior wrongdoing. The essence of justice is the redistribution of gains earned through the perpetuation of injustice. If restitution is not made, and reparations not instituted to compensate for prior injustices, these injustices are in effect rewarded. There is work being done, and we need to support it. There's House Resolution Bill 40, which simply asks a commission to be formed to study and develop reparation proposals. If we passed it, it would be a beginning. There are hundreds of organizations in the NCOBRA National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, the NAARC, National African American Reparations Commission, and of course, there's always the NACP, which has always supported efforts of reparation. I would like to suggest a National Black Congress inviting all who want to send community members from around the world to work together to come up with a concerted effort to accomplish the goal of truth, reconciliation, and reparation. Together we can make it happen. Power to the people, peace out. This has been Joy Moore, The Full Circle. All right, thank you Joy Moore and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. There is of course a lot we can learn from history and we can point out the shortcomings so we can pressure our government to do the right thing. There is, of course, still much work to be done. Personally, I have faith in the younger generations who seem to have more openness when it comes to race. And like we heard earlier from Dr. Frazier, 
we all benefit when we learn about each other's histories. And also, let me give another shout out to Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She, of course, is the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, which really helped me to understand the history of the United States and my people uh, being a California Indian. Okay, we're going to take another music break, and when we return, we'll hear some archival sound from a former KPFA broadcaster, brought to us by our own Miss M. Stay tuned to Pacifica Radio KPFA. We could grow. We could develop. As we know that heaven is not a place, and happiness lives in the heart. Long as the world keep turning, our duty is to keep on learning. You heard? Keep on learning. It's soaking up game. We gon' make mistakes. We gon' go through something. Keep on growing. Keep on soaking up game. If something ain't working, don't be afraid to change. Nobody know it all as soon as you think you do, that's when you fall. We got to do more to survive, we must evolve. Things change just when you think you've seen it all. We trip, we stumble, but we get back in stride. Each day, all the way, one step at a time. Don't want to let my ego and pride make me blind. The elders say when you stop growing, that's when you die. The one who gets the knowledge is the one who asks why. Through the course of life, you're going to taste some humble pie, but I love it. It makes me appreciate the things that I take for granted, gaining insight and Understanding each one, teach one. We got to pass it on. Keep doing the knowledge building and adding on with faith in the All right, welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM, KPFA and KPFA.org. We just heard from Dead Prez and their song Learning, Growing, Changing. And we are celebrating Black History Month tonight here on Full Circle. And before I move on to our next piece, I want to let you know to tune in tomorrow for a special all-day Black History broadcast here on KPFA. This starts at 6 a.m. and runs till 6 p.m. tomorrow. And you know many First Voice graduates will be part of it. So tune in tomorrow on KPFA for special programming celebrating Black History. And we want to continue to honor some of our own tonight. Renowned poet, author, and former KPFA programmer, Adam David Miller, passed away in November 2020. In 2017, he released Ticket to Exile, a memoir of his early life in the Jim Crow South. Shortly after that release, Full Circle's Miss M produced a video conversation with Mr. Miller and pioneer African-American broadcaster, Jerry Lange. Up next, we share part of that conversation. Hello, I'm Jerry Lange and welcome to the show. We have a very distinguished guest today, Adam David Miller. Thank you, and I'm happy to be here. You are an African-American poet, writer, teacher, publisher, and a radio programmer. I mean, that's quite an extensive resume there. How do you manage all of those things at one time? Well, I didn't do them all at once, thank You did them one at a time. (laughs) You know, when you lived 85 years or so years, uh, you have a chance to do things sequentially. And so um, I've done some things then and some other things then and some other things then. Some of them I did concurrently, 
but mm-hmm. most of them I did one after the other. Now you also taught for many years. You taught at Laney and some other colleges. So I taught it for about thirty-five years. Mm-hmm. I started in public schools in Vallejo, and then Oakland and mm-hmm. Oakland Junior College and Vallejo. Mm-hmm. I guess it was Solano Junior College. I worked at State College, now State University, at Laney College for twenty-one years. My longest stint. Oh, that's the longest. And then I ended up at the University of California at Berkeley, mm-hmm. um, working one class as I after I left for teaching full time at mm-hmm. Laney in nineteen eighty-eight. Now you've published several uh, books on poetry. Yes, um, I guess whatever notice I received has mainly been as a poet mm-hmm. until just recently. Right. And so I did publish four books of poetry. Mm-hmm. One of them um, was fortunate in being awarded the Naomi Long Magic Award for poetry, uh-huh. uh, the one called Forever Afternoon. Uh-huh. And, um, and then others were um, well received. Well, I guess the thing I want to ask now is you've written a new book, Ticket to Exile. Yes. So would like to know why you've suddenly written a book and what motivated it and uh, tell me a little bit about Well, actually, I didn't suddenly write it. <laughs> <laughs> I know those things take a long time to come. Well, no, it just said it was one of the things that was a long time coming. Yes. It was a result of mm-hmm. my being exiled from my hometown. Mm-hmm. And the exile resulted from my being as a 19-year-old, um, brash mm-hmm. and silly enough to write a young woman who came to the shop where I worked Mm -hmm. and said, "Um, I'd like to know you better. And Mm -hmm. that seven-word note got me thrown into jail, charged with attempted rape. Oh, my goodness. And exiled. So we have to know that that is a result of uh, the fact that you were born in uh, South Carolina. Yes. And the young lady was white. Uh, She, yes. Okay, well, that would get you in trouble down there. Uh, Yes, (laughs) that it did. Uh, I was fortunate some people were treated much more harshly. Emma yeah. Till, for example. That's right. You were, let, you were allowed to leave, at uh, least. Yes. But now, this t- it took you 57 years to write the book, to yes. think about dealing with it. Was, it. was it because it was so painful? Yes. I thought, yeah. Um, so. Yes. Well, see, in 1942, and of course, even mm-hmm. just until recently, mm-hmm. there was no idea that anybody black would need Mm-hmm. Um, grief counseling after something traumatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, the word traumatic um, stress uh, mm-hmm. syndrome had not been yet invented. Yes. So that where you had, in some instances, when children were traumatized and they mm-hmm. were given all sorts of psychological treatment. But in my instance, I was simply said, you know, get out of town. And then I had to bear this mm-hmm. since there was no way that. I could talk to anybody about it. Yes. Well, I know, and that's very painful. It's very difficult to write about something that has been in your life that is an emotional scar, really, that's left on you. Yeah. And that's and it is difficult to write. So there must have been a weight lifted off of your shoulders just to write the book, kind of a cathartic experience. Well, I imagine it was. Uh-huh. Um, I had been nibbling at it uh-huh. um, early on, and I tried to do it, to approach it as fiction, and I wondered what it would be like had I gone back to the town, maybe as a lecturer, and a young woman mm-hmm. came up to the lecture, or her mother or something, somebody in the family came up. See, I didn't, didn't really know her, mm-hmm. and I never saw her since. Mm-hmm. And so I don't even know her name. Mm-hmm. And so that I wondered what it would be like to have that experience. Mm-hmm. It did not happen. It was a fictionized experience. Mm-hmm. So I, I was beginning to try to nibble at it. Mm-hmm. And occasionally a poem would come out that mm-hmm. would suggest something mm-hmm. that I was trying to get at out of it. 
but it didn't really happen until in, um, I guess, 1998. I was at Vermont Studios Center on a fellowship, scholarship there, mm -hmm. and uh, I suddenly, something was gnawing at me, and I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And I sat down to the machine, and the first words out were, I hurt. I hurt. And um, I realized I had to look at directly at that particular event right. and try to unbundle it and, and string it out. So I, well, now, what's happened to you emotionally then since you, you have written the book now? It's out. Has it, how has it changed, your well, feelings? Well, it's hard to know. You know, you do a thing over five, six years, and you change, but a change is always imperceptible. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine um, someone would have to say, I knew you before you did the book, I knew you after the book. Then they could tell me. How I change. That's right. Sometimes you do need that. Yeah, but I don't know that no one has mentioned it particularly. Mm -hmm. So, but I, I mean, know. you don't have a gnawing feeling like you did before that you needed to get something out. That I don't have to get out anymore. No. There may be other you, things, but not that. Right, right. Yeah. But it's out now, and it, it's kind of freed you, hasn't it? In that sense, yeah. Yes, in that sense. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, you go into your childhood. You were really living off the land, literally, weren't you? Well, what I did, um, well, Orangeburg, South Carolina, mm -hmm. is, a, is a unique town mm -hmm. in the South for mm -hmm. black folk. In that, um, when I grew up, I mean, and since there had been two black colleges there, mm -hmm. uh, you know the pattern in the South. Oh, yes. Um, in several cities, there are colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. And wherever there are these colleges and universities, there spring up this middle class, a bubble, really, middle mm -hmm. class, and it, it produces often some very fine people. Mm -hmm. We know most of the people that we can think of came out of that bubbles, the That's bubbles right. of university and college towns. Well, Orangeburg was one of those towns. Mm -hmm. It had these two colleges, and that added a certain leaven to the whole society mm -hmm. in the sense that it wasn't like, say, a town 40 miles away, 60 mm -hmm. miles away, Florence, mm -hmm. where a black soldier returning from the war had his eyes put out oh. because he decided to go into the white uh, waiting room. They wanted to show him, a la mm -hmm. Oedipus, you know, mm -hmm. how to see. Mm -hmm. So they put his eyes out. Oh. Um, so, Just inhuman things really well, were done. The, this did not, couldn't, did not happen in Orangeburg. Right. There were awful things in Orangeburg. For example, when I was oh, 18 or 19, some white boys ran over a black man who was walking along the road one night mm -hmm. out in the country. and. And, uh, and they say, well, he must have been drunk or something. And the boys were just out riding in him. And nothing was ever done about it. We don't even mm -hmm. know who the man is. Uh, these kind of things did happen. But this was not the pattern in Orangeburg. Right. It was a much more... Uh, more civilized the, the city. It was a more civilized city. The brutality was more was in gloves. Yeah. And it did not come out really until the civil rights movement. People thought that Orangeburg, because there had been this equanimity, this sort mm -hmm. of... A harmony, apparently, mm -hmm. that this meant there was actual reason for peace. There mm -hmm. was not. There was not. So the moment the decision for in Brown came about, mm -hmm. um, the real feelings of whites began to surface yeah. in more um, virulent uh, ways. Well, they well, became threatened then. Well, but the threat was it was it was palpable. Mm -hmm. See, now when I was a boy, blacks knew uh, how things were. Mm -hmm. um, when I was a boy, a very little boy, mm -hmm. uh, the Catholic Church tried to build uh, a church in what whites thought was a white street. Mm -hmm. It was burned down twice by people thought to be the Ku Klux Klan. 
until they put it safely in a black neighborhood where mm -hmm. it could be watched 24 hours a day, mm -hmm. uh, that it could be allowed mm -hmm. to, to develop yeah. and grow. So blacks knew that this undercurrent was there. Mm -hmm. So that while the massacre of the mm -hmm. two young, three young black men in Orangeburg, mm -hmm. young college students mm -hmm. who were protesting a, um, the, the segregation in a, in a bowling alley, mm -hmm. uh, while this happened, um, blacks were not at all surprised at the reaction to mm -hmm. this. The whites uh, purportedly were, and people on the outside were. They thought that Orangeburg was an ideal place. Yeah, for ideal place until it's threatened. That's that's the test. Uh, that's the test. But tell me this: is all of that in your book? Yes, it, yes, yes. It, it, it it's is there. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, I, I get. Yeah, what I do is um, I, I'm I'm in jail. The, mm -hmm. the book is unique in in, in this sense. Is mm -hmm. memoirs. It's not a linear memoir. No. Uh, what happens is I begin with the incident. Mm -hmm. I'm tossed into jail, and then while I'm in the jail, the days that I was there. I try to see what was it that caused me to brought me to that point. Mm -hmm. So I started with my birth mm -hmm. in Dorchester County um, on, on this farm, mm -hmm. our moving to Orangeburg and then living in Orangeburg for, mm -hmm. for 15 years and moving 11 times during the Whoa. time. Yes, um, what I do in the book is I provide a map of um, of where we lived. Of where you lived. Yeah, we lived in... Um, Why did you have to move so much? My goodness. Why did you have to move so much? Well, madam, you know, this was a time of the Depression. Oh. Um, we moved up there in, um, in I think, in 26. Mm -hmm. right, so we were there for three or four years, and boom, everything came down. Mm -hmm. The mills, everybody was thrown out of job at the mills. Mm -hmm. My stepfather was a mill worker. Mm -hmm. um, we, we were out of the money economy, effectively, for for mm -hmm. um, two years. So that um, mm -hmm. we moved for reasons, sometimes mm -hmm. problems with the landlord. That's true. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, a lot of people do that. Uh, and they're doing it now in our re recession. Yeah, as well as the landlord. And my mother was very proud. And she always paid her rent. She found a way to do it. Mm -hmm. And one of the men who had a house, a reverend, for example, mm -hmm. and that's in the book, mm -hmm. um, he, we went into his house and he said, well, um, I don't think you'll be able to pay. Of course, my mother said, well, I'll have the money for you. Mm -hmm. All right. And then when he came to get the money mm -hmm. and she gave it to him, he was surprised. He says, well, um, you know, so many people, and I thought you uh, were as a woman and, and having no man. My mm -hmm. stepfather was But you gone. didn't have the money. Yeah. You know, and, but he wasn't talking to just any woman. He's mm -hmm. talking to my mother. Yes. So she says, here's your money. And she left. So we moved immediately mm -hmm. after this. So, so there were these moves. But you know, what I'd like you to do then is, could you read something from your book? Oh. Uh, a special area, that to, uh, a special page or a section where that you think is relevant to some of the things happening in, the, in uh, your well, life? Um, now, do you have a special passage? Well, let's see. The, the epilogue uh -huh. tells of my reaction oh, good. to whatever has happened mm -hmm. since. Okay. Um, as a matter of the structure of the book, by the way, mm -hmm. each section of the book opens with a poem. Oh, that's wonderful. And so that yeah. it gives a sense of what is there. And so okay. the epilogue is set in verse 2. It has two epigrams. And mm -hmm. the first one is, I am because we are, because we are, I am. And this is an Igbo saying. And mm -hmm. Igbo, of course, people mm -hmm. in West Africa. Mm -hmm. And the other is, genius is community. Mm -hmm. Genius is community. And that was said by Albert Einstein. Mm -hmm. And um, this is worth a page or two of discussion, which we won't get into. Right. But 
um, reflections on what didn't happen and what might have been. Lines to her, the young woman. They never let us finish that conversation we started. What did happen to you? Who were you, really? Those few times we talked, about nothing really, yet we hit dissatisfaction at our cores. That dime store job tied to this last, I was a shoe repairer. Had we community such that our genius could flower? For you had genius. Genius I saw in the quickness of your mind, the lightness of your walk. What would you have said to me? What did happen to you? What questions were you forced to answer by your manager, by the law, your parents when you got home? Did they try to link us in some way? See, we had things we had been hiding. We had no such things. My seven-word note should have shown them that I would like, not what we have done, to know you better, was what I asked. I wanted to tap that genius, watch it flow, share, glowing as your smile. They would not let us. They would not even let you answer me. Would you have answered? Do you, like me, carry a scar? Did you marry, let children come? Where are you now? This question has been open for me all my life. What did happen to her? I know what happened to me. Questions, jail, exile, the wandering. For 57 years, I told no one. I told no one, no one. An unopened wound kept festering, never exposed to the healing power of sun. The longer a secret is kept, the harder it is to reveal, mm -hmm. the more painful to conceal. It was all those years, remember? All those years of moving, 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 even when I stood still. My life ran on a double track. As I aged, I found it harder to stretch and keep my balance. Then one day, after bucking wind and snow, I screamed, no more of this. I stared at my laptop, I sat. My first words out were, I hurt. I had said it. I had sliced open an internal storm. I could admit the questions, dialogue with myself. Who knows? Maybe I could begin to return. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of, un men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Adam, that is absolutely so beautiful. Poetry to me sinks in when it can be anything or anybody, anywhere, anytime. Because you're talking about the human condition and the feeling of people and their emotions and their soul. And I guess that's really what makes a great poet, isn't it? 
Well, poets are fortunate in, yeah. in uh, their ability sometimes to touch. They touch the soul, I, and that, I think um, this is what I think when I ask you about feeling and packing this thing on. You know what I feel about the people in the South that did these things? I have a book that talks about what my father went through. But of course, here in Berkeley, as I point out, uh, they do it in a much more subtle way. They don't do it overtly, but they do it subtly. But the point is, the people that do these things to another human being... There's a la- they have to grow a lack of feeling in order to, to do those things because you don't do that certain things to other human beings. You raise them up, you don't put them down. So the poet tries to tell people what, how a person hurts. I hurt. You hurt me. And somehow we, we grow with the poet who tells it, but we shouldn't hurt each other. We should love each other. I think that is what we're talking about. That's what I'm getting from your poem is that you are plugged in, you're part of everything, and you feel other human beings. And I think that's where America has to go. And so I thank you so much, Adam David Miller, for joining us. I've thank been you, honored Jared to Hange. talk with you, and I uh, hope we'll talk with you again soon. Thank you, thank you. All right. And thank you, Miss M. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Remember to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org. Just after the show tonight for pictures, archive shows, and important links and information related to tonight's show. Shout out to our special guest tonight, Dr. Carrie Frazier and Miss Tracy Jones, also Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. And of course, a special shout out to all our producers tonight, Miss M and Joy Moore, and myself, hey. And one final shout out to the Full Circle crew. Executive producer is again Miss M and Joy Moore again is our production consultant. And one more time, me, Freewell and Franklin. I am the technical director for this show, Full Circle, and I have also been your host tonight. Thanks for listening, everyone. And remember to please protect your health and your humanity. And stay tuned to KPFA. Up next is La Onda Bajita. Good night, everyone.